Hey everyone, welcome back to Christ is the Cure. Today we are moving into Calvinism on election and predestination. And uh, we're going to follow the same general path that we went down for the Arminian position. Um, so we're going to basically hit on the positive case and we're going to minimize polemics. I know that some of y'all want to hear those more critical or heavy back and forths, but I think that laying out the positive framework and then letting you examine those debates will be more helpful. Um, so we're first going to retouch on what Calvinists and Arminians agree upon, and then we're going to explain the Calvinist position of unconditional election, and then after explaining unconditional election, we'll look at the same texts that we looked at in the Arminian episode, but of course from the Calvinist perspective. Now, as we mentioned before, Classical Arminianism and Calvinists find agreement in that God elects people to salvation and also for service. Those who are elected to salvation further are by extension called to service, and so there's an overlap there. Furthermore, both Calvinists and Arminians typically agree that there is both a corporate and individual aspect to election, but if you remember correctly, Matthew Pinson criticizes um, some of those in his camp for leaning too heavily into the corporate election um, position. Um, as a refresher, the Armenian position argues for conditional election on the basis that salvation is conditioned upon believing, therefore election is conditioned upon belief. Man is not elect because God chose him to be elect apart from foreseen faith, but he is elect because God foresaw his faith and elected him and predestined him to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Calvinists, however, hold to what is called unconditional election, which is the position that election is God's gracious choice made in eternity past to elect a people to be saved by faith through the work of Jesus. And this choice was not conditional upon any choice that the person would make in the future or anything about them, qualities, characters, decisions, actions, etc. So that's the difference, is that for the uh, Arminian, God elects based off of one's future response to the gospel Calvinists, however, will say that election is based off of God's choice, not based off of anything foreseen in the person. That said, um, because of the way that's framed, that can sound polemical because the Arminian would not say that there's something within the person that is foreseen, um, but the Calvinist is just making that broad statement that this is not foreseen faith, qualities, characters, decisions, actions, etc. It is God's choice. So in one sense, uh, you'll see that used as a polemic against Arminians in discussions, but in this context, this is just how we're defining unconditional election, that there is nothing about this person in the future that determined that they would be elect. Um, the Calvinists will argue that God chooses to love a people because it was his choice from his will to give mercy to some and leave others to justice. This election was not because he foreknew what they would do, i.e. respond and faith. And also keep in mind that this is not uh, a fatalistic determinism, right? This is a personal God loving people, choosing people, and it's not arbitrary. He's electing from the counsel of his own will for the, his purposes, for his glory, and so on and so forth. And so those straw men can kind of be laid aside on that point. Now, Sean Wright in 40 Questions About Calvinism lists out three points about this position. One, God's election is eternal. Two, election is personal. Three, election is grounded in God's will, not human choice. Now, uh, we're kind of skipping ahead to Ephesians because 
he's he's using Ephesians as the basis for these three ideas. Um, specifically, of course, Ephesians 1, 3 through 11. It's point one, that God's election is eternal, right? We'll point to verse four that says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. To point two, he looks at verse four again and five, emphatic on the point that he chose us or we in him um, and we were predestined. It's not an abstract group that are just merely reduced to in him we were chosen, but it was us and we who were chosen before the foundation of the world. To point three, um, that is that election is grounded in God's will, not human choice. He looks to verses 5, 9, and 11, uh, and he says, quote, the apostle's exclamation that we were chosen according to the purpose of his will in verse 5 and on the basis of the mystery of his will according to his purpose in verse 9, and especially that we were predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will in verse 11, establishes that God's choice, not ours, is the foundation of election. Um, Wright will also look at Acts 13.48, and he states the following, quote, Acts 13.48 also teaches unconditional election, for Luke reports that, quote, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, end quote. There is no way around the order of thought to arrive at an Arminian conclusions. Rather, God's appointment of those who would receive eternal life preceded the belief of these very people. Andrew Davis notes of this verse that God is the agent. He ordained or appointed these people for eternal life before the foundation of the world. And as a result of that, they believe the gospel that Paul and Barnabas preached that day. Election is the cause of faith, not the other way around. 2 Timothy 1.9 likewise asserts that God appointed by his own to salvation before the ages began. End quote. And again, that's the same source of uh, 40 questions uh, about Calvinism. Let me just double check that that's what I am quoting here. So these positions will be found in the canons of Dort, and in the canons in 1.9 states, quote, This election was not founded upon foreseen faith and the obedience of faith, holiness, or any other good quality or disposition in man as the prerequisite cause or condition on which it depended. But men are chosen to faith and to the obedience of faith, holiness, etc. Therefore, election is the foundation of every saving good from which proceeds faith, holiness, and the other gives of salvation, and finally, eternal life itself, end quote. Uh, further using the canons of Dort as our guide, in Article 6, we read, quote, that some receive the gift of faith from God and others do not receive it, proceeds from God's eternal decree. For known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world, according to Acts 15, 18. Who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, Ephesians 1, 11, according to which decree he graciously softens the heart of the elects, however obstinate, and inclines them to believe, while he leaves the non-elect in his just judgment to their own wickedness. And herein is especially displayed the profound, the merciful, and at the same time, the righteous discrimination between the men equally involved in ruin, or that decree of election and reprobation revealed in the word of God, which though men perverse, impure, and unstable minds rest it to their own destruction, yet to the holy, pious souls affords unspeakable consolation. So essentially you have the doctrine of election and reprobation here, where God mercifully extends election to those whom he desires to save according to his own will before the foundation of the world, and the non-elect are passed over and left to their own ruin, and that is reprobation. Um, In Article 7, we read, quote, election is the unchangeable purpose of God, whereby before the foundation of the world, he has out of mere grace, according to the sovereign good pleasure of his own will, 
chosen from the whole human race, which had fallen through their own fault from their primitive state of rectitude into sin and destruction, a certain number of persons to redemption in Christ, whom he from eternity appointed the mediator and the head of the elect and the foundation of salvation. This elect number, though by nature neither better nor deserving than others, but with them involved in one common misery, God has decreed to give to Christ, to be saved by him, and effectually to call and draw them to his communion by his word and his spirit, to bestow upon them true faith, justification, and sanctification, and having powerfully preserved them in the fellowship of his Son, finally to glorify them for the demonstration of his mercy and for the praise of the riches of his glorious grace, as it is written." And then that quotes Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. Um, and then Romans 8, 30. So in Article 15 and 16, the canons speak about those who will ultimately be damned, the reprobate. And the canons express that not all have been chosen to salvation, but some have not been chosen and have been passed by in God's eternal election. And this is further fleshed out in saying that God, on the basis of his entirely free, most just, irreproachable, and unchangeable good pleasure, made the following decision, to leave them in their common misery into which, by their own fault, they have plunged themselves, not to grant them saving faith and the grace of conversion, but finally to condemn, end quote. So here the canons um, express an active election to salvation that necessitates a passing by those who are in sin. And so this is a double predestination in the sense of both have predestined states, but this is not equal ultimacy. It's not the same type of election where God is positively electing those to be saved and positively electing those to be damned. Instead, God is actively electing those whom he will save and leaving the others to their just punishment. Um, so that's, that's important that the canons of Dort reject the notion of equal ultimacy. That is an active reprobation and an active election in the same sense. So to summarize, in Calvinism, um, who God elects, that is, chooses to extend grace and mercy to, is entirely his free decision and not based on anything foreseen in man. So now we can look at Romans 8, according to Calvinism. Um, Romans 8, 28 through 30 reads as follows. We'll just reread it again for the sake of, um, you know, having this in one episode. Quote, and we know that for those who God loves, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So this was touched on a little bit last time, but the debate centers around the word foreknew. Uh, does foreknew refer to what God knows to be true in the future? That is, whether or not he knows who will have faith and positively responds to the gospel and therefore he predestines them, or whether or not he foreknows in a way uh, because he has determined it to be so. To put it a different way, does the verb that we translate as foreknew in this verse indicate a mere foresight, knowing beforehand, or foreordination, that is, having ordained beforehand? The Calvinists will argue that this verb has the connotation of foreloving, not a mere foresight in the sense of knowing what one will do in the future. In essence, God foreknew because he foreordained. Um, they're closely connected. The Calvinists will argue that this is evident from the passage as a whole. Uh, beginning with the first verse in this passage, we find that God is the one working all things for good. And it, this is for those who have been called to his purpose. The purpose and plan is expressed in the next couple of verses with several verbs 
that make up what we call the golden chain of salvation. But again, this is not a complete or entire picture of the entire doctrine of salvation. For example, it doesn't tell us how regeneration works or anything like that. Um, but it is a golden chain of God's actions in history to save a particular people. Um, so the first verb of foreknew is the crucial point of contention here. Douglas Moon, his commentary on Romans, says that this verb, as knows beforehand, is the unlikely reading. Quote, In the six occurrences of these words in the New Testament, only two mean know beforehand. The three others besides the occurrence in this text, all of which have God as their subject, mean not know beforehand in the sense of intellectual knowledge or cognition, but enter into relationship with before or choose or determine before. Uh, and he cites Romans 11.2, Acts 2.23, 1 Peter 1.2, and 1 Peter uh, 1.20. He continues that the verb contains this biblical sense of no is suggested by the fact that it has a simple personal object. Paul does not say that God knew anything about us, but that he knew us, and this is reminiscent of the Old Testament sense of no. Moreover, it is only some individuals, those whom having been foreknown, were also predestined, called, justified, and glorified, who are all the objects of this activity. And this shows that an action applicable only to Christians must be denoted by the verb. If, then, the word means know intimately, have regard for, this must be a knowledge or love that is unique to believers and that leads to their being predestined. This being the case, the difference between know or love beforehand and choose beforehand virtually ceases to exist. With the verb then, Paul highlights the divine initiative and the outworking of God's purpose. This before does make it difficult to conceive of faith as the ground of this choosing, end quote. Um, so whenever Douglas Moo refers to the reminiscent of the Old Testament sense of know, what he's talking about is that within the Old Testament, there's this term yada, uh, that describes a special knowledge of a person rather than prior knowledge of how a person responds to God. And this term is used in intimate settings, such as Adam yadded um, Eve. He knew Eve. And so this the background of this term is found in the Old Testament word of yada. And so this is reminiscent of that intimate knowledge. Um, for the Calvinist, it is this understanding of a special moving into relationship knowledge that comes prior to God's predestining individuals to conformity to Christ's image. God foreknows or foreloves the saints themselves, not unbelievers, nor any decision or actions of these saints. Calvinists will again stress that this text is for the assurance of the believer, um, and you can see that right after the context of verse 30, and pointing out how it is God working for his will and his purpose while being the subject of every verb in the passage. There is no focus on what man is doing in this passage, but what God is doing. God is foreknowing, predestining, calling, justifying, and glorifying. And so in this text where Paul is saying that God works out all these things for those whom love him, the focus is on what God is doing and how this can give assurance to the believer. It is because God is working that one can be sure that they will be glorified. And this glorification began with foreknowledge. So let's circle back to Ephesians to kind of get back on the roadmap with the Arminians, and then we'll go into Romans 9. Ephesians 1, 4 through 11 reads as follows. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, 
the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So when it comes to um, Ephesians, the Arminian, as we looked at last week, we'll point out that all these blessings are found in Christ. And because Arminians hold that God's work of predestination is something that occurs before the foundation of the world, they would maintain that this text doesn't exclude conditional election, right? Um, that was kind of the argument that this doesn't necessitate unconditional election. Calvinists will argue in a similar way, but from the other perspective. That is that um, unconditional election is just as reasonable within this text and likewise, one can charge the Arminians with loading terms and concepts with conditional election. Uh, and that was where God's goodwill and pleasure of predestination includes these concepts of conditional election. So the Calvinists, as we noted early on in this episode, will point out to the fact that God's election occurs before the foundation of the world. It occurs with a specific people in mind, and it occurs out of the goodwill and pleasure of God, with no mention of the human's response being the condition by which man is elected. And we kind of see that same impasse that we saw in the last episode popping up where foreknew in Romans 8 really will affect how one is understanding these texts. Um, Romans 9 and Calvinism. Let's talk about Romans 9 and Calvinism. Um, it is at this point that I would highly recommend you pause the episode, read Romans 9 in its entirety before proceeding, um, lest you get lost in the explanation of the text because we're not going to be going verse by verse. We're surveying the Calvinist arguments. So go ahead and pause. Did you pause? Did you read chapter 9? I bet you didn't. You need to pause and go read chapter 9. You're going to get lost. And if you didn't pause in last week's episode, then you should know better. Anyway, here we go. So Paul has just expressed that the people who the Messiah belonged to rejected the Messiah when they were God's chosen people. And the question is, why? So at this point, God's promise could be perceived to have failed and that Israel failed to come to Christ. But Paul begins by countering this in verse six of chapter nine. Paul first tells us that the word of God has not failed in verse six. And he begins explaining why we can believe that for not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel. So the argument is laid out that the word of God has not failed because not all of physical Israel is true Israel. For the Jews, this would have been shocking in that Jews assumed a national corporate election. They thought of themselves as the elect of God and all the others as the non-elect. But the reality is that election is only corporate in the sense that God elects individuals into a body and that Gentiles have now been included. Paul will, contrary to the Jewish expectation, demonstrate that this is how God has always operated by providing several examples of election, uh, which the Calvinist understands as further expressing unconditional election, right? So Paul mentions Israel, but emphatically goes against the idea of corporate election and that the nation of Israel was not elected for the promise of salvation, but rather a remnant within Israel was elected to be heirs of the promise. It was God who determined who would be a child of promise, and he limits his promise to children whom he elects. Um, Paul further elaborates on the statement that true Israel is actually a remnant within physical Israel, saying that, quote, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, that is physical descent. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the child of the flesh, that is by natural descent, who are the children of God, but the children of the promises are counted as offspring. So, and that's in verse 8. 
So Paul's argument is simple. God's promise has not failed because the charge of failure is built on a false premise that merely being a physical descendant makes you an heir of the promise. It further needs to be noted that verse 8 is critical because it it is the focal point of verses 6 through 13. There's a use of a chiasm here. And so, and verse 8 becomes the, the central point. Beginning in verse 6, we read the first distinction between the children of flesh versus the children of promise. So verse 6 says, For they are not all Israel who descended from Israel. Verse 7 moves to Isaac. Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendant, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. And this stresses that same distinction between the children of the flesh and the children of the promise. Now, the center point, verse 8, reads, It is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of promise who are regarded as descendants. Now, verse 9 actually mirrors verse 7 by addressing Isaac again, and verses 10 through 13 mirrors verse 6 by circling back to Jacob. Again, the distinction is made between those who are children of the promise in accordance with, quote, God's purpose of election, end quote. This is significant because of the stress put on the phrases, the children of God and the children of promise. Paul's usage of these phrases in verse 8, that is, again, children of God and children of promise, refers to those who are saved, right? Um, you see that in Romans 8, 16, verse 21, um, and Philippians 2, 15, and Galatians 4, 28. So if we go back to Paul's examples of election, Paul first uses the example of Isaac, and Isaac would be the children of promise, not Ishmael. Uh, and this promise did not fail because only Isaac was the child of promise. In Romans 9, 10 through 13, we see another example of God's election in Jacob and Esau, which for the Calvinists solidifies God's absolute freedom and election. They came from the same mother, by the same father, and by all accounts, Esau should have been the eldest who would receive election, but before they were born, with no account of what they would do, God chose Jacob, quote, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, end quote. And that's verse 11. There was no condition to be met to be elect for Jacob, but rather Jacob was elected in order that God's purpose of election might continue. It is the one who calls, not the one who works, that determines election. For the Calvinist, the structure of verse 11 makes it clear that, quote, God's act of selection is independent of all human effort, end quote. And that is Harvey and his exegetical guide to the Greek Romans. Um, but instead of it being dependent upon all human effort, it is based on God's free and independent and wise will. A common objection that will come up is that Paul is speaking about nations because he quotes Genesis 25 through 23. But Calvinists will say that this is stressing what Paul has said in verse 6. That is that not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel. Because he is quoting Genesis 25 when it does speak directly about nations, but he focuses in on the individuals of Jacob and Esau, thus carrying along this theme of a remnant. Furthermore, Paul's stress point in verse 8 regarding the children of promise as well as the salvific terminology, call and works, right, points to individuals who are unconditionally elected. Paul in verse 14 begins by raising another counter-argument, this time regarding the injustice of God that could be perceived from this account of election. Paul counters the argument of injustice by pointing out the absolute freedom of God to have mercy on whom he desires in verse 15. And in this, we see the terms mercy and compassion, which are verbs of God's actions of choosing whom he will act upon. For the Calvinist, this is clearly referring to God's free decision to bestow mercy upon whomever he wills, whom 
here is singular, indicating that there are individuals in mind who will literally be mercied or compassioned. For the Calvinist, verse 16 restresses God's absolute sovereignty and unconditional election of individuals. Quote, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy, end quote. And because conditional election is based upon the human's will, cooperation with grace, or acceptance of grace, or acceptance of the gospel, it is a movement of the will, the Calvinist points out this is a clear marker of unconditional election. Put another way, for the Calvinist, verse 16 explicitly denies a conditional election by saying that election does not depend upon human will. Now back to uh, Paul's um, objections and answers. Why is God's election fair? The answer is because he is absolutely free in all of his actions to do as he pleases according to his purpose and neither man's will or exertion plays a role. And of course, a man's will would include repentance and faith as an act of will. In short, God is God, and he can give justice to those who deserve it, and also have compassion and mercy on those whom he desires. Mercy cannot be demanded. Paul demonstrates God's mercy upon individuals and moves the point further by moving to God's sovereignty in Egypt. Paul points to the reality that it was God's intention to judge Egypt and bring glory to himself through the hardening of Pharaoh's heart in verse 17. And then Paul then stresses, quote, So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills in verse 18. Paul's last anticipated objection is whether or not man can be held responsible for his response to God, for who can resist his will, verse 19. Paul raises the simple point that the created creature is in no position to question how the sovereign potter molds his clay, in verse 20, and exercises his freedom, in verse 21. Verse 21 stresses that the potter has right over his creatures to purpose them for either honorable or dishonorable use. The theme of God's absolute sovereignty continues as we read through the text. Quote, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, verse 22 through 23. Paul's discussion on God's sovereign and free election to salvation has moved to showing that there is no charge against God, for he has the complete freedom to do that which he pleases. In verses 22 through 23, we see that some vessels receive mercy while others are purposed for destruction. It needs to be raised again that this is a singular utilized when speaking of a vessel being molded for honor while another is molded for dishonor. The Calvinist will also point out that vessel is always used for individuals in 1 Thessalonians 4.4, 4, 2 Timothy 2.21, um, and 1 Peter 3.7. Furthermore, in this passage, there are soteriological terms being used such as destruction and glory. This destruction cannot be mistaken as anything other than judgment, especially in light of Paul's example of Pharaoh. Additionally, uh, Paul reaffirms that the vessels of mercy will be glorified. They're prepared beforehand for glory, which harkens back to the golden chain in Romans 8, 28-30. So Paul moves uh, into the extension of election to the Gentiles in verse 24, in which Paul states that even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So that is a brief survey of how the Calvinist will think and reason through Romans 9. I have my own interjection to throw into our series here, which I've been trying not to do. Uh, but I wanted to present this interjection um, because I don't see it brought up a lot. And so while this may be um, a more biased analysis moved into this episode, I put it at the end so that it would be separate from everything that came before so here is the interjection, the, and this is related to Second Temple Judaism and their conceptions on predestination that I mentioned before we moved into the Armenian position. 
within Romans 9, Paul actually alludes to Second Temple literature, um, and that literature leans towards a more deterministic articulation of God's sovereignty. Now, as we um, expressed in that discussion on Second Temple Judaism, there were several conceptions of the human will. The Pharisees were variety or varieties of compatibilism, and Paul belonged to the group of Pharisees and was an exemplary Pharisee. Now, the literature that Paul alludes to is from the book of Sirach, or the wisdom of Jesus, or son of Sirach, and the literature itself has been deemed a compatibilistic text akin to the position held by the Pharisees by many scholars. The book speaks heavily of God's providence and predestination, but also along the lines of free will and moral responsibility with a tension of compatibilistic tendencies. Um, it has this stress against hard determinism, but also this stress against a libertarian freedom. And some will actually say that this text has more affirmations of the hard determinism of the Essenes, but you can't discount the tensions that are upheld in the, the free will and moral responsibility that it presents. So Robert Wisner, which um, is probably one of the best journals to read, you can read it for free online. Um, it's Predestinarian Election in Second Temple Judaism and its Relevance to Pauline Theology uh, for the Westminster Theological Journal, 82, um, pages 17 through 32. Um, he says the following, quote, Sirach 42, 15 states that God creates by his powerful word and all his creatures do his will. Then in 42.19, we read that God declares all things of the past and the things that will be brought to pass and reveals those things hidden. This means that the Creator's declaration brings the future into reality. God does not view the future from the outside, but it is His handiwork and will take the shape it does by His design. God's meticulous control over all elements in His creation is strongly emphasized in 43.9-26, and it is occasion for the call to praise in 43.27-33. Thus, the central idea communicated through the hymn is Yahweh's sovereignty over his creation. Or as Pierdu says, the imagery then is that of a divine sovereign whose edicts create and rule his kingdom, which consists of the entire cosmos. Moreover, Collins observes how remarkably close the section is to the deterministic view of the Qumran community. Ben Sira presents an analogy between inanimate entities, special days and seasons in 33, 7-9, and human beings in 10 through 15, and both categories are treated in the same way as the work of God's hand. He has the right, in both instances, to fashion some to the exclusion of others for sanctified purposes without needing justification. Thus, Sirach argues that divine election is not random, but a part of a coherent system. Many have recognized that Ben Sirach's polemic is likely directed against early trends towards Jewish Hellenization. The prayer at 36, 1 through 22 evidences this purpose, saying that God would bring judgment against the nations and restore his people in sanctuary, while warning Jews who had forsaken the Torah in 41, 8 through 10. This context suggests the working of human beings like clay pots in 33, 13 is about Yahweh's creation of a remnant of faithful individual Israelites, not the nations in general, end quote. So within Sirach, we find this notion of the destinies of all human beings being molded by their potter and that God has an appointment at creation. First, those who will be blessed, exalted, and made near, and then those who will be cursed and brought low. Chapter 33, verse 10 through 13 states this, quote, All human beings come from the ground, and humankind was created out of the dust. In the fullness of his knowledge, the Lord distinguished them and appointed their different ways. Some he blessed and exalted, some he made holy and brought near to himself. 
but some he cursed and brought low and turned them out of their place, like clay in the hand of a potter, to be molded as he pleases. So all are in the hands of their maker to be given whatever he desires. So the parallel of this literature and Paul becomes pretty evident. Uh, and this is significant because Paul is using a very popular piece of Jewish literature in his text um, to make a point to them in, in the same way that he uses um, you know, pagan philosophers at one point or Jude uses Enoch. It doesn't mean that it's canonical, but he does use it to make a point and he does find some truth in it. So this is significant in terms of answering this question of election and predestination, in my opinion, anyway. Um, but there's also some parallels between Sirach and Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. You can find that in Robert Wisner's journal. But Wisner summarizes the points here. Um, quote, The presence of similar deterministic themes in Sirach, with Paul even showing literary dependence upon Sirach 33, 7-15 in Romans 9, 20-23, demonstrates that divine determinism extended beyond the Essenes. Although the predestinarian language in Paul is debated, and because this language is sparse and distinctive in Second Temple Judaism, the correspondences indicated some relationship between the two. The predestinarian language Paul employs suggests that he held to a theology of election remarkably similar to the deterministic ideology identified in Sirach and the Dead Sea Scrolls. So basically, Weisner says, because there is a correspondence and a dependence upon Sirach in this text, and because those elements of election and predestination are pretty rare in Second Temple literature, this has to be taken into consideration whenever we're talking about the Pauline understanding of predestination and election. And so what we have here is that Paul was a Pharisee, and Pharisees had different varieties of compatibilism, and he also utilized a text that closely aligns with the conception of the Pharisees' position on the human freedom, should be at least considered when discussing this text of Romans 9, in terms of discussing what Paul is saying about predestination and election, or what Paul believed about predestination and election. It helps us frame where Paul is writing from, and help us hone in on the author's intent. So this is the end of this section on predestination. We have just about, we have two more sections. We have the atonement and then we have perseverance or preservation of the saints. Those two sections will be significantly shorter um, because they logically follow from everything that's come before. And they will also follow this method where we're not focusing on polemics. We're just giving the positive case and addressing misconceptions if needed. So that's that. God bless you all. Have a wonderful, wonderful weekend.